I'm Dawn. And I'm Tracy. And we are Real Women. On today's show, it's all about financial freedom and what it means. What would you do if you won the lottery? And would you still work if you had enough money not to? At the end of the day, we're going to hear our financial freedom starts with financial planning. So sit back and listen in. So today we're back with Dawn. Hi, Dawn. Hi. But we've also got a third lady in our spokes, as it were, today, and that is the wonderful Michelle Herbert, also known as the Foxy Financial Advisor. And our topic today is all about the term financial freedom. But before we get into our conversation, as we do, Michelle, do you want to let everybody know what it is you do? Hello all. Um, yes, I'm a financial advisor, um, but most importantly, I'm a planner. So I plan for people's financial futures, making sure they've got everything that they should have in the different places. And then I let them know whether they're on track, off track to re- achieve their goals and what they can do if they are off track to achieve their goals. So I kind of give them that peace of mind so they know their current financial situation and their financial situation um, that they would be in in the future. Brilliant. And all your details will be in the show notes so people can reach you if they want to. So, ladies, let's get on with it. It's a term that's banded about a lot. We often see it with a lot of the education companies who are offering wealth based um, services, such as your stock trading, your property. This financial freedom seems to be bloody everywhere. What the heck does it mean? So obviously that's a question for me. Um, And this is the problem with financial freedom. It's completely different depending on who you're talking to. Completely different. So Tracy, I'm sure everybody listeners aware, fully aware that, that you deal a lot in property investing and property investors. So financial freedom for a property investor normally means they want to generate a passive income from property to leave the rat race of their employed life. That's their version of financial freedom. Um, A business owner, his version or her version of financial freedom might be that they can get somebody running the business and, again, they can take a back seat and they can do more of what they want to do. Um, Now, that might be setting up other businesses. It doesn't necessarily, financial freedom doesn't necessarily mean giving up work. For some people, it does. They want to be able to just live the life of Riley. Um, But for a lot of other people, it's more about getting other people to manage things, whether that be investments that provide a passive income, businesses that can provide them an income that just gives them that flexibility to go and do other things. Slightly different for me, because my business is me, it's an impossibility for me to get somebody in to run it because I'm the one that gives the advice. So I'm the one that's in front of the client. But similarly, I wouldn't want to not work it would drive me absolutely insane. My version of financial freedom is being able to just do what I want to do when I want to do it with the means, having the means to do it. So, you know, somebody said to me, the girls go to me, want to go out for tea. 
yeah, fine. I'm not like looking in the bank and going, have I got enough money? You know, going to the shop and buying a pint of milk and spending 40 quid, which is what I often do in the co-op. Um, <laughs> you always go in for one item and then I just get to till and I'm like, oh, well, I just need this. I just need this. I just need this. And I get to till and for some reason, it's always around the 40 pound yeah. mark. And I've always just gone in for one item that would cost one pound something. I'm like, I don't know how I do it. But again, not worrying about it, not going and going, oh, my God, can I afford that £40? You know, if somebody goes, come on holiday. You know, and I know it's within reason, you know, I do tend to have a um, champagne taste on a beer beer budget uh, occasionally because I do say to clients, you know, if you want to, um, I'm here to look at your goals and where you are to achieve those goals and what you want in the future. And if a client says to me they want a yacht on the French Riviera, Riviera, I do have to kind of bring them back down to earth sometimes and go, we need to be realistic. So it's about being realistic. But similarly, I just want to live the life personally for me that that I enjoy and be able to go out and do what I want when I want and have the means behind it. So that's my financial freedom. Yeah. I think I think there's several levels to it. I mean, you know, one element of financial freedom is having enough money coming in, even if you're not working, that your roof over your head is safe, you're feeding your kids or not as we discussed in an earlier episode but you're feeding the kids you're putting you know food on the table heating the house you've got a roof over your head and you've got clothes on your back but in reality to me financial freedom's a complete bollock statement because ultimately most people are looking for freedom of choice yeah. or a security-based freedom that says, if I can't work, I've still got money coming in. And as for people looking for these passive income streams, well, you know, don't get me started on that one. Property is not frigging passive, full stop. <laughs> I don't think any, biz- any, I don't think any business is, is passive. You know, you get the network marketers saying you get a passive income. No, you don't. Every top-level network marketer I know... Yes, they've got the money coming in, but now they're spending 50 hours a week on webinars and Zoom supporting the people in their team. So to me, it's having the freedom. One, level one is to keep the roof over your head and feed yourself if you can't work. Two is having the choice to do what you want in life, when you want and who you want to do it with. That's what what it is for me. Yeah. I find it interesting that, that a lot of the people selling the concept of financial freedom working 75 hours a day yeah (laughs) like you know how many billionaires are still working selling this concept it's 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 it is selling a dream Tracy I believe you're right I don't think there's any there's very few of us would get away with finding a way to earn lots of money enough for us to not work anything but what was really interesting uh Michelle when you were saying about differences in what financial freedom may mean. Me and my husband have this argument all the time. To him, having enough money in the bank, uh, if he won 200 million quid or whatever it is, you know, enough for him to stop work today and have a great lifestyle till the day he dies, he thinks genuinely that's about not working. You know, the lottery conversation, what would you do if you won the lottery? And I'd we start off with, well, we'd give up work for this and this. And then I all of a sudden have a list of about 27 other entrepreneurial projects that I would do instead. And he's like, what the hell are you talking about, Dawn? That's still work. But but I'm it's really 
um, refreshing to hear, Michelle, that you've kind of included that because some of us do love business and we love, we, you know, I, I think I would be bored shitless in life sitting on a beach with a tequila. I could probably do it for, for a month, two months, and I'm going to go yeah, two months yeah. purely because I love the sunshine. I love tequila and cocktails and, and doing that, but it would drive me insane. I always use this same um kind of example when talking to people about retirement because again retirement tends to be giving up work so you know if you can afford to retire is that then classed as somebody's financial freedom and I always use the example of my dad so my dad he retired at 55 he took a um, early retirement voluntary redundancy package for the post office. Now, he was high up in the post office at the time. So at that point, and he he hated working, he, he hated working for them. And he was going to, that was it, him done. He was going to retire for the rest of his life at 55. He had the money because of the pension scheme and the amount that was going to pay out. He would have been absolutely fine. A year later, he felt his brain going to sleep and he just felt he didn't know what to do with himself. So at that point, he set up his own business, crisis managing post offices, and he finally retired full time at 68. Um, so he sold the business, retired at 68. So he's now 70. And you know what? Oh, he's bored again. So what's he doing now? He's actually helping me along with my mum ring my clients and, and doing a bit of work for me because, and don't get me wrong, my parents have got a fabulous lifestyle. They've got a holiday house in Cornwall. So they go down to Cornwall for six weeks at a time. They go on holidays, you know, two, three times a year. Um, and they go out more than I do. And Tracy knows what my social life is like. It's quite hectic. But my parents' social life is even better. They go to the, you know, they go to the cinema. They go to the theatre. They're always out with friends. It's more that day to day that my dad's like, well, OK, I've woken up in the morning. I don't want a list of housework from my mum. What can I do to keep my time ticking over? Um, and that's exactly where you're coming from, I think. But going back to the lottery win, you just think that money makes money, doesn't it? It gives you the opportunity to then either make more money in business entrepreneurial ways or it can obviously go back into because I always thought if I won the lottery I'd like to do a lot of conservation projects you know um, with nature and all that sort of thing but another little thing have you ever done this where there's been a big massive euro millions and you've put a ticket on now I don't play the lottery on a weekly basis it's very one of those sporadic oh my god it's 328 million so I'm going to buy a ticket and then in my little head I'm going to be that person that wins it obviously because I don't play it that often and and uh, I go through this little thing of what I do with the money, but I'd never want to be rich on my own. So then I go through this kind of, well, I'd give X to this person, this person, this person, this person, this person. And then I kind of go through it and I go, shit, I've run out of money. Right. I need to win more then. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. that, But that's a good question. So Dawn, what would you do if you won the lottery? You know, I, I think the highest the, there's been on the Euro millions in the UK was 198 million. So what would you do if you won 200 million? Right, so um, me and my husband have already got our list as to who, and, and it's a scaling list. We, I love we, the fact you've I already got the, your list. Like <laughs> written down. Yeah, we We've had the conversation so many times we don't actually need to write it down. So it's just, you know, when you're having dinner and you just start having these, it's just one of our little conversations that we have anyway. So, so and, and there's a scale to it. So it's like if we if we won less than 20 million, it alters the choices. If we won more than 20 million, 
opens up. But so let's say we earn, let's say we won 20 million. We have, um, which isn't enough. We Our list, we, uh, uh, we it, it turned out not to be enough. I need about 200 million. <laughs> and, uh, so we've got the list of who we would give money to. So uh, his family are huge. So he's one of 10 children who've all had children who are now also having children. Um, I've got four wow. kids who have already started having children, you know, so so we've got a large family. So we've had to be a little bit ruthless with that one. <laughs> who have you cut out of this lottery yeah. win then? Yeah. Who, who's, not, who's not got in and got chopped? <laughs> and then you've got your friends. She's not going to tell us. I'm not, no, <laughs> 20 years ago or 10 years ago, let's say 10 years ago, what we were going to do is pay off everybody's mortgage. Yes, I've had that. Let's just do a bog standard what the mortgage is. Now, so my husband is one of the youngest in his family. So a lot of his brothers and sisters have paid off their mortgage. So now we're in that other, oh, we've got to actually decide, you know. So we've got the list of the people who we're going to give money to. We know what's happening with our children. Um, uh, two of them are going to do better than the other two. That That's fact. So I've got two older children and two younger children. My two youngest are uh, uh, 21 and 22. Over my dead body, will they just be get handed mm-hmm. a million quid just to, um, no. They'd end up in rehab six months yeah. later. Yeah, it, that would be bad. So so we, they have to wait till they're a bit older, right? So we've got it all planned. <laughs> and then we would probably pay off we haven't got that much left on our mortgages, actually, but we would pay that off. Although that's not necessarily a good idea because from a cash flow point of view, that doesn't work. So paying off all the mortgages is, again, dependent on how much we win. So we do that. And then that's where the fun starts. So <laughs> H is very, he's quite, you know, simple in his needs. He will uh, spend his year following F1 around the world and buy a home in the Caribbean and come and go as he pleases. I, I have a longer list. That includes like a bit of a yacht thing. I quite fancy a plane. Uh, <laughs> like I would like my own island. Like my, and then there's all the, um, like I would like to um, play with disrupting the education system. I'd like my own school. I'd like to experiment with that a little bit. Um, uh, uh, domestic violence is quite a thing for me. I would like to blast that open a little bit. Mental health uh, is something else that I would like to completely uh, uh, change. Um, and I would like to be, be an author. And I would like to. So this, you see, I could. This isn't. I, it, it's a lot for me. So so I and and I wouldn't be able to resist making my money make more money, even if it was going to get funneled back into good causes and things like that. I'm not, I'm not, a, uh, charity is a bit of a controversial topic for me. I don't like them. <laughs> in the classic sense. 
straight to the point is it do you mean like your bigger charities like for example the rspca gets a lot of stick doesn't it because they have all these people that are getting paid the headquarters and then when you actually report something to the rspca they're not necessarily proactive in doing anything about right. it so when you start digging into the reality of, of of charities there's a lot of conflict of interest in them mm, yeah. so but that's another topic all on its own so i wouldn't go down the classic charity route unless it made absolute sense from a tax point of view which it probably does but I would probably want to disrupt that a little bit as well so but in the end I'm working more hours than what I work now which is good because I don't want to go to the F1 with husband so what we would probably do is he can go world traveling doing whatever he wants and we'll just hook up every three months and you know do whatever it is that we need to do and then carry on doing our own thing and money would probably destroy our whole marriage. But <laughs> <laughs> our relatives would be sorted and that's fine. So, but yeah, so for me, having that level of, of money is about choices and I could have so much fun. And, and I'm in a really funny part where I'm not materialistic in terms of, I don't worship materialism. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think. A bit of luxury. Mm. So if I've got the choice to take the luxury, albeit, you know, that also means every now and again going and, you know, camping in a field with no makeup on and bare feet just to kind of ground you again, that's fine. No, I wouldn't go that far. I don't do camping. (laughs) I'm not going that far. so, although I don't worship luxury and I'm not going to die if I don't get a yacht in life, but if I had a lot of money, I would have a pretty luxurious lifestyle. I would. And I'm unapologetic about it. I don't care. When you go back to saying you're not materialistic, do you mean in terms of like shoes, handbags, or that sort of thing? Whereas your luxury is more of your standard of living, yeah. the where you're living and right. you know, like yacht. If I see a pair of shoes in next that are 35 quid and I like, I'll buy them. If I see a pair of shoes that are 600 quid and I like them and I want them, I will buy them. I'm not going to like that. Yeah. But I'm not going to buy them because it's got that label and that yeah. price. That price Have you seen some of the ultimate designer stuff? And I see some people walking around and they've got like T-shirts with Balmain written across here and this, and they've got all the brands and it's all like really just big logos and I just think it looks tacky <laughs> I just look at it and I think that that t-shirt probably cost them about 150 quid and I don't even like it because it looks like it's a knockoff even though they've spent that amount of money on it yeah I think I think stuff like that the more understated the better because you luxury you can tell it's luxury it's not about what brand it's got on the frigging thing but it's quite funny because if I won the lottery I'd I'd have my f off car because I'm into cars. I like cars. Well, and what's your F off car? Which would be your car then? Um, I'd go for an Aston Martin. Mm. Um, oh, I'd love a Porsche in the garage as well, but an old one, uh, like a Carrera. But then it'd be sat in the garage on its own because I would seriously, I'd do the obvious, I'd pay my family's mortgages off, which then brings a problem because one of my nieces doesn't, she rents, she doesn't have a mortgage. She got sold that one. So I'd probably go, right, you've got that much money. It has to be paid on your mortgage or has to go on buying a house. I would make sure my own house is sorted. Um, then I would put a big chunk of the money into bridging. So I'd bridge other people's property projects for a fee so that I could then just simply go around the world 
not for luxury necessarily, but for experiences. So yes. I might go off somewhere and help work on a charitable project. So rather than giving them the money, I'll go and put time into working with yeah. them abroad. Um, I'd probably do a, a sort of, you know, cruise or two. Um, cause cool. I'll, We've got to have some holidays. Got to have some holidays in there. In there. I'd travel by private plane, but not yeah. because I'd bought one. I'd do the sensible thing of, no, I'm not going to buy one. I'm going to make my money go to work so that I can pay for a, a private plane whenever I want. I'd, I'd, because I don't think I'd ever want to stop and sit down and do nothing. Yeah, same. I just, I don't think, I think I'd probably go gaga if I did that, but I'd love to go around the world and, I don't know, work, work you know, go and do a yo a really nice, not a cheapy, but a really nice yoga retreat in Thailand. Go help on some animal conversation in Australia, a conservation in Australia. Go and visit, definitely visit the Antarctic. That costs mm. that costs a fair amount, but go on an expedition ship to the Antarctic. But also, like, go to North Canada and and you know work on projects that maybe have got something to do with global warming. Not not so that I'm giving money to charity, but so that I'm getting an experience as well at the same time. I think the biggest thing I'd do is I'd want to set up something in the UK where servicemen and women that are coming out of the services because they're injured mentally or physically, many of them, some of them, not all of them, but some of them end up on the street and then they get into a catch-22. I can't get benefits because I've got no fixed abode. They've fought for us. They've gone out there and sacrificed part of their life. And, you know, the Americans, you hear them jeering up all their veterans. We we pretty much appear to do jack shit for hours. Abandon them, don't we? We abandon them. So yeah, that would be my lottery win. But I'd make sure first that I'm financially free, i.e., my roof over my head is safe before I go and yeah. But the only material thing I'd have is me two cars sat in the garage collecting dust. And you'd be one of those typical people that you see on a weekend that gets their car out and polishes it and puts it back in. <laughs> oh no, no, I won't be getting it out and polishing it, mate. I'll be paying for a valet to come round if I'm not getting enough income to pay for a valet to come round and make sure the cars are okay, you know, a bit like Parker and Penelope. I'm, I'm driving in it. Well, I no, ain't cleaning I it. It's, it's, it's because not the Aston Martin would be a usable car, but the Porsche would be the one that sits in the garage. So what yeah. you see, um, and I will stereotype it with mainly men, you see them at the weekend, they get their car out of the garage. It doesn't need polishing because it's been in a garage, but they like to just tinker with it and then put it back in again. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, but it's quite interesting. So the financial freedom, I was um, one of the ladies I'd taught many years ago, happened to be at a course with her at the weekend. And she she was going through some sort of mentioned that, you know, they started off, they got the training to get into property to create an income. And, you know, no matter how hard she tried, she, the partner didn't seem to be interested. He wasn't doing anything. And effectively not quite sure in the order, but sat down with him on the plans at some point, said, look, this is going nowhere. We've paid all this money for the training. Um, want us financial freedom and you're not helping. And effectively went quite, went, yeah, but I don't want to give up work. Because here he had attached financial freedom with leaving work. And mm. I think in reality, it's security, isn't it? Security and choice. But I yeah. think what really pisses me off is how the companies play on people's insecurity and dreams and use this term financial freedom just to get you to spend 10 or 20 grand on a bloody education programme. 
Well, just going back to that, I think that's one of the big downsides with your big property investing training, the businesses, you know, like you've just said, you've got people going there, they haven't got a scooby-doo about property, they want their financial freedom. And before they've even started and bought their own house, they are 15, 20 grand in debt from the training that they've just had, which, you know... um, it's yes, it might have provided them with an education, but they still don't know how to put that into practice. No. And so now we're starting off rather than 20 grand in his pocket to put on his first property, we're 20 grand in debt. And it's the same with the online course yep. revolution. Now it's a, actually it's about, you know, get sell online and that's a passive income and you don't have to do anything. But the graft that it takes to create a course point where it's delivering you a passive income is years. It doesn't just happen just like that. You can't just create a course, chuck it on the Internet and all of a sudden you earning five million pounds well, i wish it would be that simple do you ever see yeah. you know when you go on your go on your phone and you go to your interest you can you know i've got a samsung so i swipe right and it comes up with interest every so often there'll be some form of news article that talks about somebody who works two days a week they gave up their job from a side hustle put 20 quid into it and now they're making 350 grand a year and, you know, you look into these things and some of them will talk about drop shipping and all this sort of stuff. And I just think if it was that easy, everybody would do it. So like you've just said about that course, Dawn, if it was that easy where you could just do a course, shove it online and then make a mint, well, surely everyone would do it. Everybody would be part, doing it. The other part is the stocks and shares. Yeah. You know, and I do believe that there are people this is probably the closest to it, to be fair, that they maybe work two hours a day on their mobile or on their laptop, uh, do their stocks and shares, and they're done for the day and they can do it anywhere in the world. I get that. Um, There are some people in crypto that are doing the same and making good money. I get that. Stocks and shares, however, is not for everybody. No. Yeah, so the stocks and shares and what you're talking about is people that are trading. So they use these trading platforms to go in and see what opportunities are about. Whereas traditional investing, which is what a lot of financial advisors do for clients, is the medium to long term. It's not about swapping and changing on a daily basis. Um, Because, again, you know, I see people on Facebook, on Instagram, people I know, look how much money I'm making off my trades. And this, that, and the other, and they'll promote it for a couple of months because they're trying to get people underneath them to be it. It's again, it's like a bit like a pyramid scheme where they're then tra- training other people and then getting a bit of a cut off theirs. And then eventually it disappears and dies a death, and you don't hear from them ever again in terms of that. And because your friends on Facebook, I look at their lifestyle and nothing's changed. So they haven't made a mint of no. everything they were just saying. There's one there's one doing the rounds at the minute that's all to do with uh, currency trading. So basically you're not buying the shares or the currency, you're just paying for an option, gambling whether the price is going to go up or down, which is quite cool because I do some of it on oil. However, the one going around at the minute, they're trying to get you in on the basis that you put the money in and somebody else does it for you. And I keep thinking, and, and you know, so-and-so's got a Range Rover this week from it and so-and-so's got this from it wake up people they want you in that program because they are getting a kickback for getting you in which means you are not making all the money they're making because you might get say a hundred dollars from a 300 pound game because they've got to trickle down and pay everybody there was one i got invited to where when you put your money in to invest somebody else goes and does all the daily trading you put your money in for the thousand pound that you put in they immediately take um 
£200 to pay for your entry. And then every time you withdraw money, you pay 30% of what you're withdrawing. Wake up, people. If these guys doing the stocks and shares and the trading are doing that well, why the feck do they need you to pay for a program for them? Because aren't they already financially free? Sitting on a beach, working. Sitting on a beach. And I do get it. It is one of the areas where it's probably the closest to passive you'll come. You know, a couple of hours of trading a day, making enough money. But it's not secure income because we all know that when the market, you know, the market isn't going to always have you win. If you've got a strategy where you win more than you lose or when you win, you get a bigger return, then, yeah, overall, you'll be up. But well, it's an impossible. That's an impossibility, no matter whose strategy yeah, it is. There's no guarantee you know? to that income. There's no guarantee it's going to work. For me, every single business, every single investment vehicle, it's it's never going to be totally passive. It's at some point it may get to the point where you can pay other people to do the things you would do, but then who's managing all those people? This is what I talk about with business owners. So business owners, when it comes to retirement, a lot of the time, a business owner's retirement plan, you know, and I'm talking your typical trading manufacturer, you know, whatever businesses where they've already got staff is their plan for retirement is they want to take a back seat. They want to retire and they'll still get paying an income because I'll just pay somebody else to, to run it. So the first thing they've always got to consider is, well, they've got to pay somebody more than what they're paying now to obviously have the responsibility. So that's going to reduce the profit as to what they can get paid. But okay, in principle, it can kind of work. Now, for the first couple of years, that business owner is going to have a bit more of an eye on the person that's running it and this, that and the other. But as time goes on, what they're going to do is they're going to take their eye off the ball. So where you could have a business that if they'd have sold it and not had this passive income, you know, I want to get somebody in to manage it, they could have, for argument's sake, sold it for 200000 They decide to pay somebody else to run it, take this, the the dividends, the profit out as kind of like a silent majority shareholder, whatever they want to call it. And then, um, but that person that's running it, there's two different ways that person's going to go. A, they're going to turn around and go, well, hold on a minute, I'm doing everything, but I'm not getting the benefit of all the profit. I'm just getting paid a salary. But look, I could replicate this business and set up myself. I've now got all the contacts with the clients. The clients are mine, so they're going to come with me. And then what the business owner can end up with over time is, A, no business, so no passive income, and B, he's lost that saleability of the business at the first off because he didn't sell it, so he's left with nothing. I think we have to redefine the way we look at some business decisions and what I love about your approach and and one of the very first sentences that you said actually Michelle was actually what I do on a daily basis is plan Mm. um so it's little things and 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 you know you're in the property world Tracy you know so it's it's little things like the first time my financial advisor told me to go interest only on a buy to let my belief system was like no you pay it off you you know in the same way as you're describing, you know, I, I mean, I've got my own business, MAGB, uh, I, I might want to sell it and there'll be a resistance to that because I think, no, I can earn money off it. But you're right, we don't, we almost need someone completely unemotional and independent uh, and, and of a planning financial nature to open up some of those conversations to explore those what ifs yeah Yeah, those what ifs and and so can we concur there's no such thing as financial freedom from passive income I think we've 
established that. And so, so when somebody comes to you, Michelle, what are the first questions that you ask them so that you can identify where you think well, there's normally there's normally different reasons why people come to me. So I suppose I build on the conversation as to why they've come to me in the first place. They might come to me because they're a business owner and their accountants turn around and said you should pay into a pension. But they haven't got a clue why they're paying into well, apart from saving corporation tax at the time, because the accountant will have gone, you can save on tax and pay into a pension. So I kind of build on it. But in terms of the first questions, my first meeting with a client is what do they want? It's about them. It's about what they want out of life. I look at the situation they're in now and we do talk about different options for the future. It's a bit like, as I can deal with people of all ages and ranges. So you could have somebody that's in their thirties. They've got kids. Well, what do they want for their kids? They want to be able to put their kids through university. Do you want to get them on the property ladder and put a deposit? Because all these you need to plan in. It's no good. You know, a lot of people, and I still find a lot of people, well, actually, no, I'm going to change that. There are two types of people in the world. There are savers and there are spenders. Now, you can get somebody on a very mediocre income who's got a lot of money in the bank because they genuinely just, they save. Now, I get very jealous of that sort of person because I am a born spender. And that's not because I want to fritter money away. It's because I want, going back to if we had loads of money, what we do, I want experiences. I want to live life. I want to go out for meals. I want to go out with my friends. I want to go on holiday. People who save, they genuinely don't want for those things in life. It's not that they're tight. It's not that, you know, it's just that they don't see a pair of shoes and want them. They don't want to go out for food. They don't, they just don't, they're quite happy with their little life. But the majority of people in between live to their means. So again, going back to that planning situation, they want to buy their kids their first car. They want to put them through university. They want to, they want to put the deposit on the first house, but they're living to their means now. So how do they think they're suddenly going to magic that money then? And what tends to happen if they don't have a plan in place is it gets to that point, they take out a loan to give money and then that kind of impacts and things so in terms of my first meeting with anybody it's what it's all about them what they want out of life where they want to be and my job is then to kind of see through everything and bring it back and go right this is where we should go with that one of the biggest frustrations in my community or no it's not one of the biggest ones a a frustrating uh situation in in my community is that retirement and financial planning for retirement is massively overlooked. So you've probably got thousands and thousands and thousands of people in their 40s and 50s who haven't got a pension, uh, haven't got any, like they've not, and it, they, it, ha- it didn't occur to them when they first started teaching 20 years ago that they're going to get to 70 and not be able to, teach anymore and then how do I live from the if I stop teaching at 70 and I live till I'm 95 how how do I live for that last 25 mm-hmm. years of my life? and and what I commonly find is and I raise this uh every now and again um and there's a lot of avoidance with that because if you're 50 and you've realized that you haven't done any planning at all and now you're 50 at an age where you start to become perhaps a little bit more aware of your mortality and this is around the corner right uh I then very often get hit with people who engage on that topic are the ones that are planning and are active but it's 
the conversation isn't actually for those people. It's for the people who haven't and the people who haven't. I've got somebody at my door. <laughs> Hold on. I'll put this on mute. Two oh, seconds. that's classic. You know, we've talked about juggling our world, haven't we? Those juggling yes. on its on its, on its um, maximum, really, isn't it? It's quite funny, actually, when you think about it, isn't it? Especially in your industry, Dawn. There probably are a lot of people that haven't even given a scooby-doo as to what you're going to do when you can't train anymore. Uh, there's, there's, I would I would pitch that there's more who haven't planned than what there is who have. Yeah. Honestly. Sorry about that. Sorry. It was it was some cold caller as well. And, you know, I just answered the door and it was, hi, love, how are you doing today? I went, I can't talk, I want to meet him. <laughs> so I have two questions that are quite specific, Michelle. Hmm. If someone is a small business owner and they're between 45 and 55 and they haven't done any planning and uh, uh, what, what do you think they should do to begin with? The second question is if, somebody has been um a parent that stopped at home and hasn't had a career and they find themselves in the same age group and they're going to get divorced and again they haven't had a career and they haven't got that uh, earning capacity so that these are people who are in that situation 45 55 don't have provisions for financial planning moving forward have you got any top tips for that part I think the uh, I think the first top tip was speaks for financial advisor um the reason being so let's just go let's break it down into the two two categories there so we've got the business owner um the problem with a lot of people is because the first top tip you could just turn around and say start a pension but then it's well how much they put it into a pension what's that meaning so and they could and the amount of people that I see that I say to them, how much were you thinking? Just don't get me wrong. We've got affordability to think of. It depends on how profitable the business is and all this sort of stuff. Well, that's my job to take that into account as well. But a lot of people will go, well, I was thinking about putting 50 quid a month into a pension. And then they get surprised when 15 years later, that doesn't turn into 30 grand a year um, because it's it's just a maths perspective. Um, so in terms of in terms of top tips for both situations, first speak to a financial advisor. Why? Because they can tell you exactly what position you're going to be in. There are some people in the world that can rely on the state pension. Their life doesn't go above the state pension. No. This is why it's all very specific to, to people's people's needs. Um, again, some people will come to me and say, well, I'm going to get inheritance. Well, we don't know how much and we don't know when, but we can kind of put something into there, you know, but it's a very open-ended, depending on whether parents have had long-term care and all that sort of stuff. The the other the other top tip is, and I suppose this is going back to Tracy's um, more definition of financial freedom and security. For anybody, whether they're not planning or not, don't stick your head in the sand, hence speak to a financial advisor. But the first top tip for, for anybody, um, even before you speak to a financial advisor, is have an emergency pot. The first thing that you should do before you can plan for the future is make sure you're covered for the now. And that's having some form of emergency cash savings, because, again, see so many people that have got, oh, in my savings account, I've got £100 and, and that's it. So for whether that be the woman that, that hasn't worked now, remember, she's going through a divorce. There might be pension sharing orders and things. Um, 
that might have happened, even though she's not work. So again, needing a financial advisor to, to implement that sort of situation. But an emergency savings pot should be three to six months, your monthly expenditure. And that should be an accessible place. Now, I do tend to tell people to stick it in premium bonds just because it's outside of their bank account. Um, it's accessible. Apart from the first month, you have to wait for the first month's draw. You can access it at any point and there's no risk involved and it might win a prize. And I always do caveat it with if they win the million, they have to take me on holiday too. But uh, it works. It can work better than just in a standard access um, bank account. But it's a way, you know, a lot of people these days, like I've got about nine different Halifax accounts because I put money aside for different things and this, that and the other that I'm all going to spend within the year. But if I had my emergency pot with Halifax, it's very easy to go, oh, I might just buy that and, you know, transfer it out. So keeping it somewhere completely separate is normally a good thing. But that is my first thing for anybody that's not done planning. Make sure they've got an emergency pot first and foremost. And and what sort of, um, I think, I think the, the embarrassment of the truth that some people uh, are so in, ill-prepared stops a lot of people from coming to, a financial advisor and I don't think it's just that Dawn I think people think that they're not wealthy enough to come to a financial advisor yeah. as well but th so you've got a bit of embarrassment that they're not wealthy enough and then um there is the PR on financial advisors so uh I think people are very often a little bit gun shy of and they don't know whether they're getting a good one or a bad one have you got any kind of tips as to how somebody's never had any financial planning before can a start point because you don't know what questions to ask until you know what questions to ask right no, I can I completely get what you get what you're saying. I suppose it's difficult for me. I complete I completely agree with what you're saying. Unfortunately, um, there can be some cowboys, even though we're regulated now. And financial advisors, obviously, going back in the day before we were regulated and had to have a level four diploma as a minimum, you know, they were your door to door door salesmen. So people just assume that that's what we still do. But it's like any industry: you're going to get good ones, you're going to get bad ones. I think the best thing that I could say to anybody engaging with a financial advisor, whether they know what to ask or not, do they get on with that person? Do they, do, you know, what sort, because a lot of people have good communication skills. You can kind of get a vibe off somebody. Is he coming, is, is somebody coming and trying to just sell you interest rates and I can get you this performance, that performance, the other performance? Because if that's the case, don't touch them because nobody can guarantee any form of investment performance. But if you can... Um, sit down with a financial advisor that you think listens to you, takes on board what you're saying, and you trust them, even though you don't really know them, you kind of get, you get vibes off people, don't you, as to whether you, you like them or not, then you've got to go with your gut instinct because it is a bit difficult. You can go onto the financial services register for a start and check to make sure they do come under the FCA. So I would say that's probably a point one. Let's make sure they're not a scam artist somewhere um, because you can check them out on the FCA register. Um, but yeah, it's more of kind of getting a vibe from somebody and do they do they like them? Do they like the way they explain things? I also get, I get sometimes people coming from who've had other experiences with financial advisors and they've asked them a question and they've been very guarded as to whether to give them the answer or they've not been able to explain the term or they've not been able to, you know, put across um, in layman's terms to somebody. 
So again, if they ask them a question, if, if you know, if the financial advisor is trying to baffle them with technical jargon, yeah. are they going to trust them going forward? You know, the biggest, the loveliest thing that I, I love about what you've presented is that one of the biggest reasons people don't come to a financial advisor for planning is because they don't think they're wealthy enough. I think that that is something that I probably wouldn't have thought to think about. Mm. Um, so thank you for that, actually. And I think it would be amazing for anybody who's listening to just ponder on that for a minute that actually your current financial situation has no bearing on your ability to be able to speak to a professional who can help you plan and whatever your version or um realistic expectation of financial freedom is um do you know what might be nice to kind of wrap this up as if financial freedom is something that is attractive to you it actually starts with planning mm-hmm. would that be a reason definitely yeah definitely 100 but you hit the nail on regardless the head. regardless of your current financial circumstance mm-hmm. i love that michelle cool there you go ladies so thank you for having me ladies it's been a pleasure michelle and remember guys financial freedom starts with planning and don't get taken in by all these brilliant adverts saying you'll make this much, you'll make that that much, you'll be financially free. Do your homework and always ask yourself the question, why are they doing that if they are financially free? So another way, yeah. Sweat, grit and hustle because I um, think that Michelle probably has the flavour of all three. I'd love the sweat, sweat, grit and hustle question, please, if you want to fire away. So that I'll week. fire away the sweat, grit and hustle. She, Michelle's yeah. actually done this one before, so it'd be interesting to see if it's changed. I can't remember what I said. <laughs> <laughs> so, Michelle, we obviously with with women juggling business, running households, Wherever you're doing, whether you're working or you're in business, you are doing this alongside a lot of sweat, grit and hustle. So which one of those three words resonates the most with you and why? Okay, so um, if I can remember to last time, I think I said all three. But actually, I think it all depends on what position you're in at that moment in time. And this moment in time, it's grit. Grit, determination, resilience. That's where I am right now this second. So I'm going to go with grit. Brilliant. I love it. And it's an interesting thought, isn't it? That actually what resonates with you will change depending on where you are and what's going on. Michelle, as always, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, Ladies. Brilliant having you. And so for now, it's goodbye from Michelle. See you later. It's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. for your company and to share your spandex and stiletto stories with us tag at real women podcast on instagram